This is Francis Widdowson. This is Benjamin Anderson. This is Dallas Alexander. I'm Alex Craner. This is Forrest Moretti. This is Chris Sims. This is Chris Barber, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. Hope everybody's uh, weekend went well. This side was a busy one. Obviously, the SMP Presents happened, and uh, we're going to have the audio of that on the podcast here sometime this week, uh, assuming everything goes to plan. Um, so if you didn't uh, get the opportunity to uh, watch it live or see it on the live stream, that type of thing, uh, no worries. We're going to place it here on the podcast. I just want to say a huge thank you to anyone, everyone who, who came in for it. And uh, to all the speakers, you know, Kid Carson coming in from Vancouver, Wayne Peters uh, driving in from Winnipeg, Byron Christopher, uh, and Chris Sims, all of them, uh, you know, uh, put on, I thought, you know, what can you say, like, uh, you, you put a bunch of minds like that together and and uh, it was it was an it was an interesting night and uh, you know I I certainly enjoy being on the stage and, and getting to facilitate something like that. Either way, um, really uh, really enjoyed the the evening, the weekend, getting to you know around different people. Uh, speaking of things coming up, Canadians for Truth, March twenty third, Brian Dennison is in Calgary at their event center, and then March 26th, Dr. Paul Alexander in Red Deer. So if you're uh, following along with the Canadians for Truth, just go to uh, canadiansfortruth.ca. You can hit their Facebook page, etc. All the details are there. And uh, that's some upcoming uh, things happening here in Alberta. Uh, the team over at Prophet River, Clay Smiley, and uh, in, in the group there uh, have been... Uh, <laughs> What, what am I thinking here? I'm, I'm, my, my brain's been kind of mush. I, I'm going to be honest. It's been a long couple days, but I'm like, what am I actually trying to say here? Anyways, I'm looking at two things and I go, well, how will we do this? They specialize in importing firearms from the United States of America. And I keep reiterating this, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to firearms at this point, um, the amount of stuff going on with guns and government and everything else, you might as well have somebody in your corner who knows uh, the ins and outs of all that. And Profit River, I tell you what, that's what they specialize in. Um, they are the major retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. So it doesn't matter where you're sitting. They can help you. ProfitRiver.com. Uh, go check them out. Uh, Michco uh, Spring, Michco Environmental, the uh, Tyson and Tracy Mitchell. Their uh their big season. I actually get to sit down with Tyson here in a couple of days. Here, this is Sean. This has been Sean for like uh, the last twenty four hours. My brain is a little scattered. I I uh, need a, a good sleep. I'm I'm assuming. Either way, uh, <laughs> like what kind of intro is this, Sean? What are you doing here? I don't know, folks. Sean's just uh doing his thing. Um, Michco Environmental. Uh, their busy season is going to be coming up right away. They're going to have huge hiring spree, you know, uh, spring when all the kids get, are getting out of, uh, college kids are getting out, uh, they, they go on a big hiring spree. They hire a whole ton of people and then their busy season is all through spring, summer, right? So, uh, if you're looking for work, MitchcoCorp.ca, or you can give them a call, 780-214-4004. I don't know why I said it that way. 4004-4004. See, my brain is, yeah, hey. What are you going to do? Uh, Gardner Management, they're a Lloydminster-based company specializing, specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs, whether you're looking for, you know, something that I got or something a little bigger. Give way to call if you're in the Lloydminster area, 780-808-5025. Let's get on before Sean melts his brain anymore. And uh, you're probably laughing at the radio right now before I, I go on any other uh, curveballs here. How about we just get onto that tail of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm 
farm commercial or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. First served 24 years in the Canadian military from 1989 to 2015. He did six tours, three in Bosnia, one in Kosovo, two in Afghanistan. The second, 27 years from 1983 to 2010. He did seven tours, two in Cyprus, Bosnia, Croatia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and West Africa. I'm talking about Willie McDonald and Adam Corbett. So buckle up, here we go. This is Willie McDonald and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Well, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined in studio by Willie McDonald. So first off, sir, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks you, for having me. You know, you're, you, uh, I, I was telling you before I uh, got on air with you, I've like cleaned out the entire room because I, I got this event coming up on Saturday, which by the time this airs, folks, it'll be Monday, so uh, bear with me. But uh, I, um, I, I normally there's like other things in here. I might have a spotlight in your face and that type of thing. You're getting just nice, nice and easy. Just a couple of mics... The old uh, head, headphones and a computer, that's it. This is uh, pretty much the, the, the easy going of it. No stress on you this morning. Yeah, it's perfect. And what the heck are you guys going to do? You guys are, you guys are driving through to go fishing? Yeah, we're, uh, we're heading up to Lake Kippabiska, which is uh, Tisdale area. Oh, Tisdale. Uh, we have a good buddy up there who's a veteran, and uh, this will be the second year in a row we've done this um, where we whole bunch of us go up there and he's got a cabin on the lake and we just have a nice fishing trip because uh the 17th of march aside from saint patrick's day is also regimental day for the princess patricia's canadian light infantry which was the birthday of the original lady patricia so uh that's why our regimental day is celebrated on that day let's start here who's lady patricia how's how's that so she was the first colonel-in-chief of the PPCLI regiment when it was stood up um, in World War One, basically for World War One. So she was appointed as the colonel in chief, and uh, she was a cousin to the queen, I believe, the late queen. Um, to be honest with you, the monarchy stuff is kind of lost on me sometimes. I don't, I don't follow it super close, but you know, we know, and we've had. We've had uh, contact with, um, so the original Lady Patricia um, passed away three, I think three years ago, um, and she was cousins to the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Um, so she was an old lady. She was, yep, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, she, she actually led a very interesting life uh, from the limited history that I know. Um, she was the uh, the Countess Mountbatten of Burma, so her father was Mountbatten, Mountbatten, and uh, you know that that whole family. Interestingly enough, you know they're they're one of the most attacked by the IRA families in history. Uh, they I can't remember where they were. They were on a on a on a a yacht somewhere, and she decided to go shopping. Um, so she went to shore to go shopping or so the story goes. And of course, a bomb explodes on her father's yacht and, you know, basically kills the whole family except for her. So, uh, rumor has it, she was Queen Elizabeth's favorite cousin and, uh, she would show up for 
all the sort of keystone events in the history of the of the Princess Patricias. And, and when I say that, I mean March 17th, she would always be somewhere with a battalion, uh, be it in Calgary, where the, the first battalion was stationed for a long time, or uh, overseas, you know, if, if there was a battalion in Cyprus, or Germany when the second battalion was there, or, you know, as late as Bosnia in the in the mid 2000s, she was still visiting. So you met this lady then? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Did you ever? I'm just curious. Did you ever just like sit and have a chat with her and be and, and hear anything, or she was just like ceremonial? Uh, no, she was she was ceremonial, but she really loved spending time with the troops. If you know what I mean, she didn't want to be she didn't want to be corralled by the officers. She wanted to sit down and have a beer and and talk with the troops, and she did that quite often. Um, I myself did spend a little bit of time with her, um, but only because she came to Bosnia in 2002 and I was a sergeant at the time and, and I kind of got tasked to take care of her personal security. Um, so I had some interactions with her based on that, but my task at the time was very external. So we weren't looking in, we were looking out and just kind of seeing to her well-being. So. Um, I never had a good opportunity to sit down and chat with her. You know, um, forgive me because uh, I sit in a room decorated with with hockey stuff, and you you said you listen to Jamie and Chuck, so you you you'll, it's it's almost the same bloody question, folks. But I'm like, uh, you know, when you uh, when you and your buddy walk in, and you got a dirty Patricia hat on, and I'm chuckling. I'm like, uh, like very proud to be a Patricia. Then, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I assume it was like, um, if we're going to use the Edmonton Oilers, I, sure. I, I was going to think of a different team, but I, actually, I, w- I was going to use the Montreal Canadiens. We'll go with the Montreal Canadiens. You play for the Montreal Canadiens, and if you won the Stanley Cup, I mean, that's not quite w- what this is, but that's the way the lore looks to me. Right. Um. I as I slowly, you know, I. I I sometimes laugh at myself, boys, at how little I know about our Canadian military. So right. when Jamie first came on, and then Chuck, of course, came on next uh, with Jamie, and we got talking about the Patricias and everything else, I'm just like, I know like zero about this. But when I hear you talk about it, I hear about March 17th, which is like tomorrow. Right. Uh, this is still a big day for you guys, which means it's part of the the culture of being a Patricia, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... it's um you know, it's not, it's not like Christmas with your family, but, um, you know, it, I think it gets more and more important after you've retired or after you've left the service, because it gives you that opportunity to sort of reconnect, um, with your colleagues from that particular generation of soldier and perhaps previous because, uh, and I'll just segue here for a second. Sure. So Adam, who's here with me, um, uh, him and I and another good friend of ours, Johnny Devine, we started doing a fishing trip, just the guys, the three of us. Um, shit, it's got to be back in 2000, maybe, 2001, somewhere around there anyway. It was the early 2000s. And that has now evolved <laughs> to the point where we have had as many as 21, 22 veterans, first responders come out to this fishing trip, which we hold up in, in Northern Alberta. Um, and interestingly enough, Adam and I were talking about it and saying, you know, there's, there's been interest from external organizations to provide support. And, you know, they look at it, um, almost like a fishbowl and say, Hey, what can we turn this into in terms of 
the health and well-being of veterans. And and part of that comes from the fact that once everybody shows up, you know, normally one of us is standing on top of a picnic table saying, okay, guys, there's only a few rules here. Rule number one, you know, we're not going to judge you. We don't care what your problems are. It's a safe place for you to be. Rule number two, if somebody's napping, you can't wake them up. And rule number three is the fire has to burn 24 hours a day. And, you know, there's some other you rules. Know, I, I, I'm going to say this right now. Adam, you sure you don't want a mic on? <laughs> I'm positive. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The, the, it, the People cannot see this, folks, because I don't have any cameras in here. I've already <laughs> labeled that. Every time Adam's nodding, he's laughing. I'm just like, let's just get this guy a mic. Yeah. Put him on. You sure you don't want one? We keep going, guys. That's, yeah. Take me two minutes. All right. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, let's do it. All right, we got it uh, now. We got Adam Corbet, Corbett, Corbett. We got Adam Corbett uh, hopped on with us. We convinced him. So uh, <laughs> welcome aboard, Adam. Let's talk about the. I know I'm, I'm, you both probably chuckle at when we're talking about your camping trip, but uh, I'm curious. Why not waking anyone up from a nap? Is that an old guy thing? Is that an army thing? What What is that? And I don't mean to suggest you guys are that old. That right. sounds terrible. Um, I just you know I I'm on. I got kids and I love a good nap and. Personally, I prefer not to be woken up from it too. So I don't know. I think I think the I think where it really comes from is that you know we spent the the bulk of our adult lives in the army, and you know this fishing trip really was a time for just the guys. Like it's just guys. We don't invite uh, children or or you know spouses um, to get out and relax. It, it it's really a place to just come and and get away from everything and spend you know three or four days. Um, getting, you know, decompressing as it were. And I think that that rule is important for us because we have lots of guys that'll get up, you know, they'll start drinking beer at 8.30, whatever the case may be, or they'll have some Baileys in their coffee. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, maybe it's raining out, maybe the weather's not great. They're like, hey, I feel like a nap. So we're not allowed to disturb them from their nap. That doesn't mean we don't take pictures, etc. But they're but they're not shared for wide distribution, right? We just use it to to make fun of each other. You know, we live such scheduled lives anyway, and this is like Willie said, that's an opportunity to unwind. You know, a lot of guys, you know, have big families, and you know everything's very organized, and kids waking them up or or whatever. They don't need to have that when they come on uh, on this. Uh, on this ride on the on the lake you know it's funny i um i i i don't know why i get curious about such little details i just no waking anyone up from a nap that's an interesting one um you know for the listener even for myself you know i willie was asking me when he first walked in like uh you know like well what have you researched what have you done what do you and i'm like Listen, between Jamie and Chuck, I know, you know, about you as about as, as much as they could tell. And Adam, I know from a hole in the ground except walking in the door. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm rather excited about it. So maybe for me and the listener, we could start with this. Uh, each of you can go one after another. You can certainly add to the story as we go. Don't feel like you can't hop in on one another at all. But I am curious, you know, like, uh, who is Willie and why did he join the, the military? And the same with Adam. And then maybe uh, as you're going, how long you served and where you served. And we can kind of get a feel for, uh, you know, the two people I got sitting across from me today. Because I feel like there's a, there's quite the story here. And I, I want to get to some of it and uh, and see where we go. Yeah, sure. I guess I'll start, Adam, if you don't mind. Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> so, you know, as Sean said, my name's Willie McDonald. Um, I was I was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces for just shy of 25 years. Um, 
and boy, you know, joining the army was not something that was in the cards for me. Um, I was, I was a, you know, 16 year old soccer player, um, and arguably, you know, pretty good. Um, and my mother was a single parent. Um, and she said when I was 16, Hey, it's time for you to get a job. And my best buddy at the time, guy named Rob Stevenson, who's from Regina, uh, that's where I grew up, um, said, hey, my, my dad told me I should go join the reserves, so why don't you join the reserves with me? Um, and so we ended up going down to the armory in Regina and signing up to join the Royal Regina Rifles, which is an infantry reserve unit in Regina. Um, and, and really kind of didn't look back from that, you know, I think it's important to recognize the fact, and, and Adam and I were talking about this on the way up here, I didn't have a father figure growing up. You know, I had some uncles and stuff like that, but uh, when I joined the, the reserves, you know, now I had some some male role models. And, and good or bad doesn't really matter because as a 16-year-old trying to navigate, you know, who you are and what does it mean to be a man, et cetera. And, and you know, it was important. It was an important sort of growth development part of of my youth and and I stuck it out there for for just shy of four years and I was going to university at the time and I thought I just hate this I just hate university it sucks and I'd already had some some conflict with some of the professors and I said you know what I'm just gonna join the regular army what was your conflict with the with the professors well interestingly enough uh, it was an English professor and I wrote a paper about some short story and what was the author talking about and so I wrote this paper and said you know it was very well structured etc and the professor gave me a crappy mark and I'm like well why did I get this mark and he said well that's not what the author was was trying to get at and and you've completely misread or misinterpreted this story and I said well did you know the guy well no I said well then how do you know that I'm wrong as long as the structure's there the arguments are there you know, the support is there to, to, to make my arguments, then you really don't have a leg to stand on. Anyway, long story short, I ended up going up to the head of the faculty or whatever, and they overturned it and said, okay, I give them a proper mark. But, uh, you know, that was the first time I went, you know what, this, this institutionalized way of thinking, and, you know, this is, this is kind of funny because I joined the army. <laughs> But this institutionalized way of thinking, there's only one way to do it. This is the only way you can you can view through this lens. Just That just wasn't okay with me. So I just said, no, I'm going to quit university. I'm going to go join the regular army. So off I went. <laughs> it's funny, uh, just to hop in for a second. Yeah. In high school, I wrote a paper on, uh, oh, dang, it's like snow falling on trees or snow falling on leaves or some book. Anyways, it's 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 a murder mystery, but it's it's a romantic Anyways, it's a big book. I wrote a wrote an essay on it, and I remember this like quite vividly. Funny the things you remember from your childhood, and they gave me a failing mark on it. And I asked, "What, what did I fail?" I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm a great writer. I'm not saying any an A, but I mean a fail. I mean, complete the project. Why to fail? We obviously didn't read the book because you're insinuating that the the lead character who was, uh, you know, a Chinese man, and it, it was very race-based uh, push on on who was guilty. And uh, I'd argued, well, actually, up until a certain point, all the evidence pointed that he actually did it. And so that's why I had... Anyways, she told me I hadn't read the book. And I said, I, I went... I'm like, I, I totally read the book. I just, you know, 
this is how I looked at it and everything until about chapter whatever. And as soon as, so then she gave me a 50, like three so that I passed the paper <laughs> instead of the 40, whatever it was back then. Right. And I, I still remember that. And I'm, I remember thinking like, like why, you know, like, you know, like, like certainly the book is trying to tell a story, but every reader who reads the words is going to interpret it differently. And anyways, that just sprung to mind. And that was in high school. And yeah. that one really sticks out with me because their first accusation of family was not to even ask me about it. Why did you think this was you didn't read it? Right. Because there's no way you could have got to this conclusion from reading the book. And I actually had read the book. And, you know, maybe it was a little bit surprising because hockey player and everybody assumes hockey player with dumb jock and everything else. But I loved reading as a kid. You know, and it was a big, healthy book back then. And I just loved reading. It was a tough read, but it was still, anyways, I'm, I'm rambling, but you get the point. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point because, you know, and not to stray off too far, but, you know, perspective is important and having different perspectives is important. Um, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have fire, we wouldn't have wheels, we wouldn't have, you know, all those things that, you know, we look back at cavemen, quote unquote, and say, okay, well, this, there was some development there. Somebody had an independent thought and it worked out. And, and, you know, arguably there was a ton of failures before that, but we got to a point where, hey, this works, this is great, you know, and it advances the society. Um, maybe it's not always right, but it doesn't matter. Perspective's important. That's how we grow. That's how we develop, right? So anyway, um, yeah, yeah so. I, I derailed you. Anyways. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, Welcome to the studio, guys. Yeah. I, I don't get to do this that much on a, a computer screen because internet is funny and technology is funny. And when you talk over somebody, the audio gets, you know, shitty, essentially, and you can have real problems. But when you're in the studio sitting across from me, like, we're going to have some fun today. Anyways, yeah. carry on. Yeah, so I went and joined the regular army. Um and I ended up in the 1st Battalion in Calgary. What did your parents think about that? Well, interestingly enough, when I when I joined the reserve, so my, my father, who was, I didn't meet my father till I was 14. Um, he was an Air Force guy. Um, and he never really had any influence uh, on me, my development or anything. But I had actually phoned him when I was 16 and said, hey, you know, my buddy wants me to join this reserve unit. And, you know, the sort of colloquial term is, is militia, you know, he wants me to join the militia with them. And, and I'm thinking about it and he's like, oh, I think it's a great idea. And I had talked to my mom and my mom grew up in a military family. Um, her father was in, was in the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. And so after the second war, my mom was born in 44. They, you know, they spent a, a whole bunch of time in France where he was posted Anyway, the, the, I guess the, you know, growing up, she had a really tough time. Her father was an alcoholic and abusive and blah, blah, blah. Um, so she was dead set against it. <laughs> she was like, no way are you joining the military. And so I had called my dad and asked him about it. And then I, and then I spoke to my mom afterwards and said, Hey, listen, you know, it's a, it's a part-time gig. It's weekends, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll try it out for a year. And if, if it doesn't fit, then I'll just, then I'll just leave. I'll just float away. Right. Like you don't need, there's, I'm not locked into anything. So she eventually relented and signed the, the sheet because you have to be, you know, 16 years old, you can't make that decision on your own. You need parental consent. So my mom had to sign the sheet and she did. Um, and I think, uh, for her, when I joined the regular army, it was, she was somewhat disappointed because she was, she had you know, the, the hopes and dreams you have for your kid. She's like, oh, he's going to go to university. He's going to get a degree. He's going to be successful, blah, blah, blah. And then after a certain number of years, um, 
she became extremely proud of my service and and you know became a big supporter of the Canadian Armed Forces and and what we were doing because she had that intimate knowledge right um, and to the point where you know we're in Bosnia together and and I send her a letter because we you know we only had 15 minute phone calls once a week back then and I say hey you know can you send over some some blankets and some candles and some batteries and stuff for the for some of the families here that I'm working with and you know she would go do a big sort of donation drive and and next thing you know these you know three giant boxes of parkas and you know all this stuff shows up and and we're in Bosnia in Bosnia yeah and we're handing it out to the families there that need it and uh you know it was just it was that was her contribution right to to what we were doing um, you guys served together one tour? Uh, was it just one? We were in Bosnia together in 97. Um, but. There's a but. Yeah. Adam and I spent a lot of time together outside of tours. He was my deck commander on Basic Raggy. And, and, you know, maybe it's a good way to introduce Adam. Is, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I, w- I would love to bring Adam into the conversation. Yeah. A- Adam is, is one of my mentors, right? Like. Um, when I got into the regular army and within the first year was on a basic reconnaissance patrolman's course, Adam was my instructor. Um, and then we served together in different platoons in the battalion sort of throughout a number of different years. And, and we did the one operation together and I always worked for Adam. Um, and so, you know, I attribute a lot of my history, my military history to guys like Adam. Uh, and I mentioned Johnny Devine before he's, he's one of those guys as well, but you know, those are the guys that had influence on your development and sort of sure. shaped who you became. Uh, just for my brain, just so I can get uh, dates kind of clear, w- what years did you serve in the military? So if I include my uh, time in the reserves, I served from October 1989 until January of 2015. Okay. And Adam, if you're his mentor, what was your span in the military? I joined the military in uh, 1983, March, right out of, I have just finished. Pull, pull that mic right into you, or, or slide over, yeah, yeah. Right out of high, high school. You know, it's similarities to some of you. I didn't like school at all, but I was very fit, like you playing hockey kind of thing. I always I always chuckle with uh, with people in the mic. Some people are just they, they don't they got no problem putting something like this, anyways. And other people want to talk around it. Um, for the, for the listener and for myself, uh, when it plays back, it's better if you talk right into this sucker because it's it it needs this. I will endeavor to do better. Yeah, well, you, you got a great voice for it. Anyway, sorry, Adam. 1983, right right out of high school because I hated school. I, I didn't, you know, I come from a small town called Wyoming, Ontario, down in southern Ontario by Sarnia. And I didn't want to work in the plants. I didn't want to have anything to do with agriculture. And I didn't want to take on a secondary uh, education. I didn't, I just, to me, it just felt like a, a complete waste of time. And I picked it up. I didn't, like Willie, I didn't go into the reserves or I, I my parents weren't anti-military they didn't know anything about the military i didn't know anything about the military and it was an advertisement in the london free press for recruiting and that's how i ended up going into the military like i used to steal my dad's guns out of the gun cabinet and walk 15 kilometers back in the tracks 
and you know plink away all day with my dog that's what i used to do for fun kind of thing so i was kind of a natural to go into the infantry and when i did my testing i qualified for infantry obviously uh uh eod and firefighter were my three picks the only thing i didn't qualify for was uh uh radar screens picking out stuff on on radar screens there eod explosive ordnance thank you right which i should have went into because i should have waited or been a firefighter kind of thing thinking in the long run but being in the infantry was a natural uh, for me so in 83 you come out of high school and you go smack dab into training where do you where do you where do you do your training at? yeah i, I did uh, cornwallis all right for eight weeks and then uh, off to wainwright for what was that one 16 weeks yeah it was a long that was a long haul a guy coming from Ontario, I'm curious what your, uh, did you do a ton of traveling as a young kid or was the first time coming to Wainwright one of your uh, first opportunities? That was my West? first opportunity what did you to think go of the, What did you think of the West? Coming? I loved it right away. My first posting was Victoria. <laughs> you got Victoria? Yeah, before they closed that base down. Yeah. You know, RCMP officers obviously get stationed all over Canada, you know, and, and different places and different everything else. When you're in the military... Are you, you like licking your chops to get a place like Victoria or, or, or is it, does it matter? I, I totally lucked in into it. And then like even with day one getting there, I just fell in love with the place. Like the water. I'm a, a real water baby. I really like like the water, mountain biking, climbing, you know, hiking, anything like that. Victoria was wonderful back then. How many, uh, well, and wait, did so d- you luck out. Where did where was your first uh, posting? Was, was Calgary, Calgary in the first battalion. Well, Calgary ain't that bad either. Yeah, I mean, Calgary. honestly, we used to have the best postings. We had we had Victoria, Calgary, and Winnipeg in the PPCLI, and the Royal Canadian Regiment, which is the Eastern Canada Infantry Regiment, uh, outside of uh, the Van Dues, which is obviously Quebec based. Uh, they had they had London, and they had Gagetown, and Pet. Well, maybe Petawawa, but they were they were like always jealous because we had these beautiful cities. <laughs> That, that we could get posted to. You know, uh, Winnipeg, maybe not so much, but uh, the guys that were there loved <laughs> no, it. Poor old Winnipeg. <laughs> no. <laughs> the guys that were there loved it. So, um, yeah, I, I went to Calgary, and I, and I was fortunate to go to Calgary, in my opinion. I really enjoyed it there. And me as well. I was very fortunate. I, ha- I had no idea what PPCLI was at all. I didn't know. All I knew is I needed to get away from Ontario and see the world. That's what I, that, that was my – and shoot guns. That was my objective. Oh my! It's called. I think it's called the brain freeze, folks. I just had an absolute brain freeze. I, had a, I, I know what I was going to ask. How many years did you? That's weird. Uh, you know, it happens time to time. How many years did you serve? I, I did twenty-seven plus. Well, you did twenty-seven. Okay. That that means we got over fifty years of experience of military sitting in this room today. What's some things about the Canadian military, uh, you know, the average person just has zero recollection of? You know, like you guys have spent majority of your life serving for this country. You've got to not only train across Canada, see different parts, live in different parts, but then, I mean, how many uh, how many tours did each of you go on? So I did uh, I did three Bosnia tours. Uh, Adam and I worked together in Kosovo. That was the other one, Adam. Um, and then I did two in Afghanistan. You did two Bosnia? Three Bosnia. 
three bot. You did three tours in Bosnia. I did three tours in Bosnia. I did one tour in Kosovo, right at the start of the war there in '99. Yeah. And then I did Afghanistan in 2006 and 2012. Eleven, maybe. I you did remember. six tours. Yeah. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long. That's a long time away from your from home. Whatever you. Whatever that looks like for you. Did you enjoy it? Oh man, I loved it. We were t- again. We we're talking about it on the way up here because we talk about that stuff all the time, right? When we get a chance to catch up, because I live in Calgary now, and Adam lives in uh, St. Albert, just outside, outside Edmonton there. And I was literally saying to him, "Man, you know, there's there's very few things that I would change about um, my service because I just had such a good time, and it, and it was it was you know." was the best time of my life but when I left uh you know it was also very clear that um who I am what defines me is not the military it's just a part of my history um and and it's not my my personality maybe is driven by my service but but Mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't define me as a human being right that's that's an interesting statement um I've probably, I, I see such correlation. Uh, obviously, it's not identical, and I don't even mean to make it that. Just between being a hockey player and being in the military, right? So many people, it beco- uh, comes to define who they are. And when you come back from that, it's hard to uh, not even just integrate back into society. It's just like, well, what do you do now? And that's a big question because, you know, here in Canada, you can do whatever you want to do for the most part, right? And uh, I think that's a really uh, interesting statement because, uh, well, so many of us get locked into what we do is who we are. And um, coming back from six tours, spending almost 25 years in the military, uh, at what point along the way do you realize, like, this isn't who I, you know, like, I'm more than just a guy with a a gun slinged over my shoulder? That's a great question. I, I, I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, it wasn't until... So when I left, when I retired from the, from the military, um, I went to work for an elevator company, Schindler Elevator, and I still work for, for that company to this day in, in a you know, management role. Um, and I also don't consider myself an elevator guy. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just Willie. That's, that's who I am. And, you know, that's how I've built the, the, the network or the, you know, the friend circle, whatever you want to call it that I have. And, uh, it, I don't think a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, my, my acumen at being a soldier. I think a lot of it had to do with just who I was, right. And, and how I was raised and the values that I have and, you know, my ethics and arguably, you know, you, you stray outside the line sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, you got good friends like Adam to kind of knock you back into place. Right. And, and so I, I don't even know how to answer that question. And just one day I just was like, and I, and I was having a discussion with my wife and I said, you know, the army does not define me. That's not who I am. It's a part of my history and it, and it helped me becoming the person that I am, but it's not who I am. Yeah. It's a chapter in a book. Right. Right. It's a, it's a good chapter. It's a very interesting chapter. Heck, it's what brought you here today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if it isn't for what you two uh, had done earlier in your life, uh, maybe we never crossed paths. But instead, you know, as the world works and as Sean continues to have all these conversations, you know, uh, somebody, my wife said to me today, you know, oh, where are you go? Uh, you know, who you got today? And I'm like, 
I got uh, a military guy driving in. I have no idea. You know, it's like, and then, and then Adam walks the door. I'm like, oh, this is, this is Sean's perfect day. I know people will be like, how does Sean pull off, you know, get comfortable? This is my perfect day. Love meeting new people. Love having a curveball thrown at me or a high heater or whatever we're going to call you. Um, but this is, uh, this is about as cool as it gets, but certainly a chapter in the book. That's, that's, that's what I think of it. But getting back to your, uh, uh, original question there about uh, what was the biggest component that I took away from the military it would be you, you know what it's like to be on a on a team you play for a hockey team or a baseball team or 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 whatever kind of team yeah, for me I think that was magnified by about a hundred percent being on a military team being with guys that you know will watch your back you know that will they'll risk their life to protect yours or even sacrifice their life to take yours. For me, that was the biggest, that's why we have these fishing trips because that stuff doesn't never washes off, yeah. right? It stays with you well, for the rest of your life. I, I don't know if I get this right. And I hate to always bring up the hockey analogy. I just think when you win as a hockey team, it's a lifelong bond. Yeah. You, 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 you walk by... You walk by somebody you won with, and you're like, hey, how's it going? And it's just immediately. Absolutely. And when I listen to what you guys are doing this weekend, I'm like, oh, that's exactly what it is, right? Yeah. You're going to walk in. You're going to shake hands. Maybe you haven't seen each other in three years, but it doesn't matter. Nothing has skipped a beat because you've all experienced something that very few do. In sports, it's winning. Like, very few teams get to win. Look at the NHL. I mean, or, or just look at some baseball, you know, the freaking Chicago Cubs. I mean, 100-plus years, right? Like, until they, <laughs> they finally pulled it off. You know, are you a Chicago Cubs fan? No. <laughs> baseball fan? No. <laughs> Adam gave me a fist pump, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's a big fan. <laughs> Side note. Um, okay, how, how many tours did you do, Adam? Uh, seven altogether, I think. Yeah. You did seven? Yeah. So you did Willie? Yeah, a couple of them were Cypress. Those are pretty low, low level. You know, in the early days, that's all we. That was the only tour operational thing that we could do was to go to Cypress. Op Snow Goose kind of thing. So, yeah, I did two tours there. Uh, Bosnia, Croatia, Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan, and uh, uh, West Africa. You guys were together in Bosnia, yes? Yeah. Can we talk... Uh, Bosnia is one that uh, first came on my radar when Jamie Sinclair was on here. He talked about how, you know, they, you know, they tried talking and maybe even Chuck talked a little bit about this, how they tried talking to people like, look, what happened here? Like, how does, like, what's going on? Adam, I could see you nodding your head. Uh, let's talk about Bosnia for uh, uh, a little bit. I'm just curious, your guys' experience. Very beautiful place, but besides the wreckage and, you know, the fired up buildings and... Minefields. Minefields. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, Croatia was the same same thing too. It reminded me a lot of like southern Ontario with the cornfields and yeah, but there's some of these places you just can't walk in the field. You can't go into the bush, right? Because there's all these unre unrecorded minefields and unexploded organs and 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 what happened? That is a very good question. What happened? Like what drove a, a sector of people to be like this and destroy your country and hate each other? so bad that I have to come here and supervise you like a ch like children 
kind of thing. And it's, you'll get a different answer. I, I honestly, I don't have the answer because I've asked that question lots of times to locals. And, and I think a lot, a lot of times they don't even know what the answer is. Isn't that mind-boggling that they don't know the answer? Yeah, it is very mind. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, I think popular history is the sort of the rule of the day. And and if you go back to the conflict in Northern Ireland and, and, you know, when when human beings are raised from the time they're born to hate somebody, uh, you know, it, it perpetuates itself over generations and it gets to a point where we don't even know why we hate them. We just know that we do. And, you know, in the Balkans, the, the popular history is that, you know, when Tito died um, and he was the, you know, the communist leader of the former uh, Yugoslav Republic, when it was all Yugoslavia, um, that's that's where it fractured because then you had a power struggle. Uh, you had a vacuum that, that occurred and there was a power struggle between not just different ethnicities but different religious um, organizations, right, or religious beliefs. And so that devolved and continued to devolve into, you know, okay, so there's Croatians, there's Serbs, and there's Muslims from Bosnia called Bosniaks. That, that was kind of what we called them. But um, we don't really understand these arbitrary lines that they've drawn, and we don't really understand why they hate each other so much, and we don't really understand you know, what the power grab is all about. Um, and like Adam said, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. You know, anybody that's spent any time on the Dalmatian coast, you know, will tell you and, and, you know, the bridge and most are being blown up. And, uh, you know, like those are examples of, of, you know, historical things that, that are, you know, magnificent feats of engineering that are gone, right? It's no different than the statues of Buddha being blown up by the, by the Taliban. It's a symbol of maybe prosperity or, you know, a symbol of a, of a certain ethnic group or, you know, uh, whatever you want to say. And it gets destroyed because they're trying to wipe them off the earth, right? It's just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. So um, I was just happy to be there. I mean, I was young. It was it was an adventure for me, right? Um, so it was great. I was in a, my first two hours in a place called Visico, just outside of Sarajevo. And uh, it was it was definitely interesting and eye opening. Well, I, the reason I ask is, you know, is uh, you know, like I, I can read the stories on it. You can watch documentaries on it. You can you can do a whole lot. You two got to walk the grounds. You got to walk around and talk to the locals. You got to see firsthand. And uh, certainly, um, uh, the more people I talk to, I get to talk more and more and more. And I'm just I'm just curious if anything struck you as like, you know, because. I think over in Canada here, and I could be wrong about this, and you two certainly will have an interesting perspective on this. I just don't think we think we could ever happen here. I don't think we think we can ever slide that far. I don't think it can ever get there, blah, blah, blah. Like, it'll never happen here. And I think that's a scary thought, actually, to act like nothing bad can ever happen. It can never, you know. And so it's the reason why I bring it back up over and over again. And I appreciate you guys entertaining me with uh, at least my thought process. Yeah, I, man, I, it's like anything. It's like, it's like cancer. It's not going to happen to me, right? Oh, I'm not going to have a heart attack. Well, I'm not going to car accident. Those things happen. And, and to me, there's, there's no difference. Um, those things can happen here. Um, you know, personal political views aside, 
um, you know, I think we're at a time right now in our, in our country where, you know, we either come together or we split, right? Like it's, it's, it's a very interesting what's happening and I find it somewhat scary. Um, cause I wore a Canadian flag on my shoulder for, you know, 25 years, um, because I believed in this country. I believed in our way of life and, and, and I still do, um, don't get me wrong, but I have concerns <laughs> if that's, you know, kind of the mild way of putting it, I suppose. Yeah, I was very proud to represent Canada. And and, and for me, um, to leave some skin in the game, it was important to me to protect those that weren't able to protect themselves. That that was my my gig, especially kids, right? Parents I could I could care less. They're responsible for why those children are are in the and that was the that was my gig. I would do anything to protect a kid. Very risky stuff too, because I you know, they're not responsible for what their parents are, are, are doing or not doing. Do you, do you mind sharing, I don't know if a story or just an example, uh, when you, when you talk about kids, I, 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 um, I'm, I guess I, as a, I don't know, civilian boys, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to envision what you're, what you mean by protecting the kids. Um, maybe let's talk about the gypsies in, in Kosovo. Remember that? Where, yeah, there was a gypsy family. And, and where we were, there was a village that was abandoned. They had to leave, right? So they just locked everything up in their in their houses and walked away. Well, we were responsible for protecting that to a, to a degree because it became an issue. A, a gypsy family moved in with kids, right? And they stole a bunch of stuff out of one of the houses and it caused a huge incident. Like these villagers were going to kill this family kind of thing. And there were the kids running around in snow on the ground no boots or or anything like thus the jackets and and stuff uh, being sent from home because these people had nothing kind of thing all they were doing was trying to survive and then there's us in the middle of it right trying to keep keep trying to keep the peace so to speak kind of thing yeah it's just yeah can you, you know as a parent I, I always go, nothing can prepare you for kids, right? Owning a dog can't prepare you for having kids. Was there anything in your training that could prepare you for what you saw, you know, with that simple little story? Is there anything, you know, like you roll over, I don't know what you guys were expecting, but, I, you know, even if they said, oh, you might encounter X, is anything going to prepare you for that? Uh, Kosa, that was a quick deal, that one. Yeah, which I... We both liked because there was no six month pre training to go there. I think we went what was it a month, yeah, and, and we were on the plane going there. So we had no. I didn't have any expectations. I don't know about you, well, but it was you know it was a pretty rushed mission. You know we had to get all the vehicles uh, collected up off the ship right from the port, and then get them to us, and then we had to get in them, and then we did a big road move down there the camp uh, that we took over there was nothing there it was a pool that was an old police station i think is that what it was yeah Yeah. and so we had to do the wire we had to do all the protection yeah it was like from ground zero kind of thing so yeah i had no idea what so what do you mean you 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 got sent over to kosovo um and then hmm, I, i gotta think about this let's refresh everyone's memory okay let's start there why did we get sent? Why did you get sent to Kosovo? Um, well, 
uh, again, Kosovo was attempting to break away from, um, I think it was Albania. I could be wrong, but it was, it was part of that whole Balkans deal. Um, and, uh, so of course a, a conflict broke out and again, it was, it was in my understanding, in my opinion, it was, it was religiously motivated. Um, and when we were there, it was, it was a struggle between, you know, the Serbs and the, and the Muslims. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I can't even, I just remember on the news, you know, one day it's like, oh, there's a war has broken out in Kosovo. And the next day it's like, guys, we're going start packing your gear. And we're like, uh, okay. And we literally did a week of training and then we were on airplanes flying to, uh, to Albania and our vehicles came into the port of Greece. Uh, they were driven to Albania where we met up with them. And then we jumped in them and we did this giant convoy. It was all over the news. It was attack helicopters that were provided by the U.S. and stuff. And we literally drove across the border into Kosovo and we all had different objectives to go secure. And that's kind of what we did on not really knowing what was going to be there. You know, it was all, it was in the news because the Russians rushed right down there to take the airport, right? And that became headline news right away. So there were Russians that had secured uh, secured the air and, and NATO or yeah, they wanted to get in there right away. So it was very political. So yeah, that, that was my take on it anyway. You know, it's interesting. I, I just pulled up a map because I'm like in my head, I know where Kosovo is, but I'm like, at the same time, I'm like, Sean, you better refresh, you know, and you see where it is in like, you just see how many little uh, countries are just squished together. I don't think we, I just, I, I'm talking to myself right now, folks, not not to all of you. I'm talking specifically to Sean. It's like, I don't have a clue of how close all these people are compacted together and how quickly things can unravel. You know, like, because, you know, you, you look at Kosovo, you got, to, and I'm just going to rattle off uh, the neighboring borders. You got uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Thank you. I, I was like, I, I didn't even realize that. Uh, you got Serbia, Montenegro, Albania, Greece, uh, Bulgaria. Uh, Romania is is off, but I mean, Romania isn't. It can't be that far. It's so. What's that? One, two, three, four, five, six neighboring countries. I think maybe seven. One, two, three, four. Five. We'll, we'll give it five, and then within a stone throw, you got like. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah. You know, that, that's the result of, um, the former Yugoslavia, because that all used to be just Yugoslavia for the most part, you know, save Greece and some of those other places. But, um, they were all part of that republic. Um, and then when the war started in the early 90s, that's when all this splintering started to happen. And, uh, you know, people started forming borders in their own countries. and So here, here's a question for two military guys who've been to, uh, I'm not saying the worst part of the world, but have been put in situations that um, take a, uh, not a giant country, a bigger country, a larger country. I mean, we sit in like one of the largest countries in the world, so everything compared to that is pretty small. And then it gets torn up into little tiny, you know, power hungry little spots, whatever we're going to call it. You got people in Canada that want to break Canada. You got people that think that, you know, you mentioned earlier, Willie, you know, we're at a, we're at a kind of an inflection point maybe of like, do we stay together or do we pull apart? 
you guys have got to see what pull apart looks like. What what about that don't people get? Well, I think it's a terrible idea, personally, um, you know, um, for a number of different reasons. But uh, I don't think, in my experience, that anything good can come from it. And, you know, that's really all I'll say about it is I, I don't think it's a good idea and I don't think anything good will come of it. Yeah, they should stay together. They should, as a whole. Right, we've seen, uh, like I've seen the Bosnia, <clears throat> or sorry, Serbia, Croatia deal, and then Slovenia separated, right? And so that was a very smart decision on their part in that war. They separated and they got out and they didn't suffer any of the destruction and and the heartache and the terrible things that happened uh, between those two. And it's just, I, I didn't get it. These are people that lived next, literally neighbor to neighbor kind of thing and then just one day they all hated each other you know at one point gents i wouldn't have got it either but then you know the last couple of years and you watch the united States, i'm married to an american so you could see what uh, republicans and democrats doesn't matter your affiliation you can just see what happens there in canada we all have all lived through the last three years uh for better or worse whichever side you fell on that coin and felt how much um I was going to say hatred. I don't know if that's the right word for what uh, our leaders, and I, I'm speaking of specifically Trudeau, has said to uh, really put us first them. And I, I actually feel like I don't fully understand it, but I kind of understand how it starts, right? Yeah. I, like you, you can feel it in our own country right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I have concern about it. I mean, you know, that's, that's, I think about it fairly often. So how, how then Willie or Adam, how do you, you can feel the, the divide kind of pulling. And I always quote Daryl Sutter because I loved when he got on stage and, you know, and he was at a news conference and he said, there's three things that bring people back together. And he said, um, church, church, geez, John, church sports and music and of course the Oilers were playing the Flames and even if you hate the Flames because I'm an Oilers fan or you're maybe you're a Flames fan and you hate the Oilers you still love it because it brings everybody's there and uh, you want to see a good hockey game and sure your team loses and for once the Oilers come out on top and I'm happy but I mean there's something very it brings everybody together you know, we're concerned. Everybody's kind of concerned about it. Everybody can kind of feel it kind of happen. It's seeping in and it's, it's you know, COVID really tore at the, the foundation of the family. And, and, you know, I mean, geez, just yesterday they arrested the pastor in Calgary again. And you're like, what is going on? Like this is, we're in, we're in la-la land. Um, how do we, can we, is it possible to get people to come back together? Because right now it feels like it's being pushed, 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 pushed. Or maybe that's what they lead us to believe. I don't know. And I just say they in a very open sense. Yeah, my, my humble opinion, and, and, I, and I believe in this regardless of the circumstance, is that our biggest failing is communication. Um, we live in a society right now where be, if you have a different opinion, it means you're wrong. People aren't willing to sit down and have an honest, open discussion about why they believe in what they believe in and what the best way forward is. Um, 
you know, it's it's almost like ultimatums are being dropped. If you believe, yeah, you know, if if you if you were a supporter of the Freedom Convoy, you know, that automatically makes you whatever adjective of the day comes up. Um, and if you were on the other side of the coin, um, you know, again, you know, it's like, well, I don't, I don't believe in that. And 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 I'll be honest with you, you know, I I have, I got vaccinated at the beginning because I you know was somewhat compelled to for my employment um, but I also served 25 years in the military and had about 17,000 vaccinations and I was like eh, what's the risk you know to myself and I made that decision on my behalf and I have friends that that made different decisions and, and I'll tell you what I didn't do I didn't ban them from my home I I didn't call them names I just went hey man that's your choice and I respect your decision because I respect you as a human being and your ability to, to decide. And, and that was my mantra throughout the whole thing, you know, and whether or not I agreed with it is irrelevant because I got to make that decision and I didn't expect to be judged for that decision. Just like I didn't expect myself to judge other people for their decisions because I think we're all adults and, and we have that, that was, that was the inference to me was I have the ability to make that decision right? And eroding freedoms or whatever the case may be based on what your decision was, like, that's what started all of this, man. It's just, I just don't get it, you know? Um, Jamie, great example, right? You know, I stayed at his home, he stayed at my home, no problem. I wasn't afraid that he was going to kill me or my family, you know, uh, by accident, I wasn't afraid of it. I was like, hey, man, you made a decision, and that was the best decision for you, and you're still my brother. I still love you, and you're still welcome in my home. Um, you know, it, that was it. I mean, we still held our fishing trips through this whole business. You know, we have a we have another event. I don't know if Jamie talked about it. July long weekend, we hold it out at Jamie's campground. Um, we still held that. I think we missed one year. There was a very reduced footprint. But, you know, we still, we still have those things and get together because life is worth living, man. Like you, you let those opportunities pass you by because you draw a line in the sand. It seems like a bit of a waste. What's going to bring us together? I think the best thing that I have seen, uh, domestic operations like, uh, the fires, Right, that brought that whole community in, in out west. Okay, the uh, I was at the Rayleigh fires and and the Kelowna, Kelowna fires, and that whole community came together, rallied together, it brought everybody together. The floods was the same thing, the Winnipeg floods, right? Everybody, came, I think it takes almost a national emergency to drive us all together. What that looks like, whether it's fire, floods, ice storm, or even possibly conflict, like a war. Look what how how we came together as a nation through all the wars that we came in. Everybody came together. All our natural resources, all this little nitpick, bickering kind of stuff had to be put aside because there was no choice. That's what that's what made this country the way that it is. We all came together. That's a great point. <clears throat> If the biggest issue we face is communication, and I I believe I agree with that. I'm trying to think if there's anything I, I think that goes on top of that. 
Um, that's a really uh, because I don't. I personally don't want to go to war. I don't want to ha- think about, Neither you know, like we grew up uh, going uh, Remembrance Day, huge day for this country, right? And I, every every little town in Saskatchewan, I grew up in a, in a farm, but, you know, Hillmont's a hamlet. So tiny, it, it's, you know, it doesn't get even village. It's a hamlet. And it's funny, I, I meet people from Saskatchewan all the time. I, I grew up in a hamlet. And what all of us in Saskatchewan share in common, and I assume everybody across Canada is, Everybody has their monument because every little hamlet, town, village, or village, town, city, all had people who went and fought in that war and died. That's, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think anyone escaped that for World War One or World War Two. I don't want that. Like I, I don't want to have to to bring people together. I don't want to see names on a wall that all passed. I, I don't want that. So when I, I look at communication. It's funny because that's what this weekend, the next event that I'm doing is all about. It's like, you look at media, we have an issue. We have one side being talked about and one side in our country not. At least that's the way I see it. So how, the easy answer to me is, well, you create uh, the other side and somehow they get a level playing field and maybe, but then but then you have the United States. And the United States, what's the problem they have right now? Well, they're like 51% something and 49% the other thing, which is pretty much you're going to hate each other. And so you go, okay, so how do you get people back together with communication? Is that even possible with such large amounts of population? Is you come back to it all, is the algorithms and social media and blah, 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 is that the, the real issue here? I mean, it's a great question. I don't know enough about it to to really speak super intelligently to it. But uh, I'll tell you what: like, I I don't watch CTV, CBC. I don't I don't I don't follow those those programs or those you know those um, their websites or anything. Um, I, I tend to read Al Jazeera and and a few of the other maybe AFP a little bit, but um, it because it's the same thing over and over it, you're kind of consuming the same story just written on a different day and you know whether or not i agree with it is irrelevant um the fact that to me and i and i spoke to you about adam day who was one of my one of my good friends um his style of reporting was i don't care what side of the political spectrum you fall on i am just here to tell the story a- and you know, another great friend of mine, Christy Blatchford, who, who passed away a few years ago and, you know, wrote for the Globe and National Post. And she was the same. There's so many people that just hated her guts. But the thing was, um, there was the story where she would put her personal opinion on it. And then there was the story where she just reported the facts. And it seemed to me like, you know, with Adam, with Christy, people don't want to hear facts. They want to be told what to think. And it's just like, well, no, we can't do that. You know, you look back at, I remember I grew up, we lived with my grandma, the, the 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock news. That was her thing. She had to stay up, watch the news. As soon as the news was over, she'd go to bed because she trusted the person that was reporting the news. It's not like that anymore. It really isn't. We read a headline and, and, and form an opinion based off of a headline rather than digging into it and, and trying to find the truth because it's easy, because it's convenient. And, 
you know, I remember, I'll give you a good example. When we were in Afghanistan in 2006 and after August 3rd happened, you know, and the, and the, and the four guys got killed, the front cover of McLean's magazine was a picture of me and my colleagues carrying Von Ingram's casket to the, the back of the, uh, the waiting airplane. And the headline on the front of that magazine said, what are we dying for? And originally I was somewhat incensed by that because it was like, how could they say that? Like, you know, that's, that's just, it's, it's not true. Like, you know, because we believed in what we were doing, but once you open the book and read the article, you realize, oh, okay, it's not as bad as the headline would make it seem. But my reaction, my, my emotional reaction was to be angry. But I made, I took the next step and opened it up and read the article, right? A lot of people don't do that, man. So it comes back down to the individual all over again. Of course it does, right? And, and when you start compartmentalizing pieces of Canada, people of Canada, you're this, you're this, you're this, instead of just being Canadian, right? I, I think that that starts the, the, certainly starts the division, right? And people start floating apart instead of coming together as a nation. Right. And right now we're not, we're not the nation that I, you know, wore that, that flag. We're, we're something that's completely different now. And you're talking about communication and, and people are not, people are not really communicating with one another. The news aside, that's for me and, and politics, right. And politics is hugely responsible for that division. Now we're not acting as a whole unit I talked about teamwork before and we're not a team anymore we're multiple multiple teams and, and we don't we don't have a main mission now to draw us all in together and stay focused and become the Canada that we that we were we're very different now and I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not how we're going to get there well that's the million dollar question isn't it yeah you know, I, uh, all I, all I do is run into people, you know, I interviewed Gerald Gronin, 97 year old, grew up in Holland, was part of the underground railroad for sneaking people and food. And he gets put in a cattle car and, uh, sent anyways, just this un unbelievable story. I'm sitting in the room with this man who still has his mind and is telling me this story. And I just, you just don't want it to stop. I, I not be, I just, uh, to me, you can read the stories, but to have them, so, somebody tell it in their voice and then and their perspective, and then and then at the end of it say, "But I truly believe there are more good people than bad, even the Germans, even the Americans." And you're just like, "This is a guy who got loaded into a cattle car by the Nazis, and he's gonna, you know." So I I, I sit back and I, I keep running into all these great human beings that. Somehow, we have this problem of like, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm not willing to listen to you because of, and I don't, I don't know how to get around it. I just, I, I, I just, I just don't. And then, but then I, I tack onto that. I just see what's going on in Calgary right now, and I go, oh man, we are in, we are in dangerous territory, and I don't even know what that means. And I, I got two lovely guys sitting across from me who have experience in this. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, I, I think 
Willie, that, you know, you, you look at Canada right now and it kind of, you know, scares you a little. And I was curious, what scares you to right now in Canada? Because once again, some of, you know, it, it's Ukraine, Russia, the, the bank um, uh, in uh, Silicon Valley going, it's all these different things happening all over the place. And I go, okay, how does this come back to Canada and affect the people that I love and want to protect and want to go on and my kids and everything else. Once again, I just think it's kind of interesting timing to have both of you sit across from me and go, well, what what scares two military vets as you look around the country right now? Well, for myself, I mean, it's not about me anymore. It's about my eight-year-old son. And I think about what his future is going to look like. Eight, yeah, eight. Um, and, I, and, you know... <laughs> I say to my wife quite often, I'm worried about the world that's the country that's going to be left for him, um, you know, financially and economically, we're as far down in the toilet as you can get, and he is going to be paying for that, and his kids are going to be paying for that. You know, six, seven, eight years ago, we had a surplus um, on our budget, and now we're so far in debt that it's going to take decades to claw out. And... Uh, and I think it's irresponsible governance. I think it's I think it's uh, divisive politics, and I think that you know playing with the future of of our children and our children's children is, is just absolutely the worst thing to do. And 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 you know I've made the comment, and again you know not taking sides here politically, I've made the comment often that um, all the good people that would be really good politicians just don't want to get into that because. Because after a year or two, they, they just feel so beat down by the system that they go, I can't do this anymore. And, and you know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Brad Wall, you know, he was a great premier for Saskatchewan. He decided to leave and, and he's living a wonderful life. But my opinion of why he left is that he was like, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm fighting an uphill battle and I fought it for X number of years. And, and you know it's it's somebody else's turn to take the reins, and uh, you know it's about what does good leadership look like right now. I don't, I just don't see it, man. It's funny you bring up Bradwall. I've pretty, I've been pretty uh, rough on Bradwall, not be for exactly what you just said. Why isn't he sticking in the fight? And everyone goes because the fight got too tough. And I go, you know why the fight gets too tough? At least this is my eyes. I'll, I'll let you two just tell me I'm completely wrong. I went and listened to. Uh, um, um, Danielle Smith and I got lots of time for Danielle she's been on the show uh, and I went to a UCP fundraiser basically you know to raise money for the UCP party blah 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 and they sat there and they patted themselves on the back all night and you know donate money and everything else and then last night I was in um, I was in Wainwright listening to uh, hosting I guess uh, I should say um an event talking about municipal bylaws, you know, and, and just listening to what people are concerned about. It's a pretty boring topic when you think about it. And yet this is what people are concerned about. And I didn't see any politicians there. I didn't see any, uh, I, and forgive me if you were there, I apologize. I just, I didn't get introduced to anyone. I didn't, and uh, one of the things um, I, I really want out of a leader is somebody who's willing to listen to uh, Sean, Willie, Adam, hear what they have to say and just talk to them and try and take away the, not not even the emotion, but just like acknowledge, okay, I hear you. 
we're going to try and talk about this, whatever. And maybe they're doing a great job of it. I don't see it. And one of the, you know, <laughs> you just see it play out over and over again where they, they don't want to talk about a certain subject because if they do, and Daniel Smith will be the, I think would be the first sage, came on the show. She was very open, talked very much with what I wanted to talk about. And then, uh, you know, Global and them took what I had said or what she had said about my questions and used that on their thing. And that's what they did. And so what you get out of politicians is they they don't want to talk about everything because the opposing side will literally take what they said, ram it down your throat as these are the worst people in the world. When all I want as a voter is exactly that. I just want them to come talk. I, I want them to hear what the public is like crying out about. And that, to me, that's like a, a, you talk about communication. I see that huge like gap. And how do, you, how do you bridge that? When the opposing side will use exactly what they're doing if they do it against them. Yeah, to hurt them. Yeah, absolutely. Or some political edge or, you know, you talk about leadership. That's the part that scares me the most about this country is when stuff is gets real serious. I don't believe we have the leadership to even help us try and survive it and meet it head on. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We've let our military fall down to this state now where we can't even protect the North. We're so reliant on the Americans. We can't. We don't even have aircraft that had the armament to be able to shoot down the balloons that were flying over us from China, right? It's just, if you don't have leadership, I don't know. It just, it scares me. How about this? What are you guys hopeful in the, in uh, you know, uh, you look at Canada. I, I, I hate to be so doom and gloom, you know, and, and, and focus on it. Is there anything from your standpoint that you're like, listen, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to this, or maybe you should talk to this guy, or I have been talking to these people, and this is some positive things going on in our country that may bear some big fruit in the future. We're Canadians. We'll, we'll, we'll fight our way through it. You know, look at look at our history. We're, you know, we came over on ships and, you know, worked the land and, and, and endured all kinds of hardship. We'll, we'll figure this out. We'll, we'll get through it. That's my positive spin on that. We have the core. We have a core. And that, that core is solid and that'll help us get through it. Whatever it is. Yeah. I, I think there's enough good people in this country that care about the future and that are doing what they need to do to raise their children um, you know with the with the same sort of values and ethics that this country was built upon that uh, that there's there's good things in the future right we, we just need to make sure as the as the adults of the society right now that we make good decisions um, you know I think that that's super important and leave something for the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, before you get, I let you guys get on with your day and, you know, and go fishing and all that good stuff and stop talking about politics and hard things and maybe suck back a couple sociables. Uh, could, could we talk about uh, the white school? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's um, in the military men I've talked to, it's kind of in lo- this like different realm of its own, Willie. And I, I don't even know the story, so maybe you could, yeah. maybe you can regale yeah. us with a bit of, uh, you know, what happened, what went on. Uh, certainly, I know it was uh, August third, um, two thousand six. Yeah, Afghanistan. Correct. 
but other than that, I, I'd, I'd be curious to, to, to hear a little bit about it. Yeah, so let me let me give you a little teeny bit of background before we get into the story. Is is the Canadian Armed Forces um, <clears throat> during my time typically underfunded, uh, under resourced, um, but we always made do with what we had. You know, an immense amount of initiative and creativity and imagination in order to achieve the mission, and and that was a must do. You know, I can remember lying in, on the ground in Suffield, Alberta, wrapped in a, in a plastic ground sheet, freezing, soaking wet, because we didn't have good equipment, right? But we, I, I managed to survive that. So, you know, it builds that resiliency, right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a story there. What, what were you doing in Suffield, wrapped in a... Well, there's no trees to... to, to get shelter under so you're you know the best you can do is wrap yourself up in something to to keep the elements off right so uh you know as an infantry soldier we spent a lot of time sleeping in the dirt uh whatever that looked like so um but anyway i think it's important to bring that up because we 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 did suffer and we suffered together um be it overseas or on training in wainwright gagetown whatever the case may be um but we always came out of it with a good sense of humor you know, it, it, at the time it sucked. And then when you're sitting in the mess, however many days later, you're laughing about it and going, man, that was stupid. Like, like we're morons, but Hey, it was awesome. Right. And so that's, that's just one thing. And, and the reason I tell you that is because when we went to Afghanistan in 2006, that was, that was, you know, literally we had just transitioned from the training mission in Kabul down south to Kandahar province, um, there was a, a provincial reconstruction team camp set up and we, I got there in January and we came into this massive American base at Kandahar airfield. And, you know, we had everything we could need, everything, bullets, fuel, food, fast air, attack helicopters, predator drones, you name it, it was there. Um, and so now we had all these different tools in our toolbox and as a battle group, Task Force Orion, led by Colonel Hope, um, with all these resources at hand and the experience that we had making do with very little, we did not really, up until August 3rd, come up against an opponent that scared us. We just rolled right over them, right? We went through lots of gunfights. We had lots of combat experience. Um, and when we got to August 3rd, all of a sudden... <laughs> Because we had switched from Operation Enduring Freedom, which was under American command, to NATO ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, our rules of engagement changed on the 1st of August. And so you talked with, with Chuck and Jamie about this in your podcast with them. Um, and I'll get to it, but, you know, I was calling in airstrikes and they were being aborted because I was calling the target a school. And, you know, there's a team of lawyers who are who are um, giving counsel to a general in a room somewhere and saying, oh, you can't attack that because he called it a school. So just imagine that we've had all this stripped away from us. So uh, I'll go back to the beginning, August 3rd, 2006. So my platoon, reconnaissance platoon, we had been told, hey, we need you to go to uh, Patrol Base Wilson, which was on the, uh, the highway, um, I guess would have been south of Panjaway and which is east of Kandahar city. 
and we're going to stage there for an operation. We didn't really know what it was about. So we go and, and, you know, we go to patrol base Wilson and we're having coffee with the boys and, you know, the officers are getting orders. And then we get called into orders, um, as the section commanders in recce platoon and myself, I was a JTAC, a joint terminal attack controller. So I was throughout the entire mission in Afghanistan, uh, for that tour that I was on, I was calling in precision airstrikes from various different air platforms. So because of that, you know, I become a combat enabler or combat multiplier. And so I usually get pulled into the, the, uh, planning for these missions. So there was some intelligence that said, Hey, the Taliban's massing in Panjaway. They're going to try and push into Kandahar and, and take the city basically. And that's where the governor's house was and blah, blah, blah. So Colonel Hope got orders basically, Hey, you got to stop this from happening. So it was, it was kind of a two pronged mission. The, the, the company from the second battalion B company, they were pushing from the North to the South from patrol base Wilson into Panjaway to the North school and Charlie company. Uh, I can't even remember the platoon nine platoon, maybe those guys were told, Hey, you're going to go with recce platoon reconnaissance platoon. You guys are going to come from the East across the Argandab river. And you're going to push into the vicinity of the white school. Um, and you're going to secure that objective. And basically we're going to, we're going to corral the enemy and make sure they can't squeak through and get to Kandahar city. So, uh, you know, we do, we do orders. We leave patrol base Wilson around three o'clock in the morning and we come through the Argandab complete blackout drive. Um, Colonel hopes outside of his, his lab and he's, he's, st- he's standing outside directing traffic because it, it was in blackout drive, um, with bulletproof glass, you can't see through that with the night vision optics that we had at the time. So it was all naked eye stuff. And he just wanted to make sure people weren't getting lost. So he's directing traffic to make sure we get across the Argandab River. Okay. Um, which essentially at the time had a little bit of water in it, but it was more of a wadi. And, you know, fast forward 15 minutes, the lead vehicle stops, says, Hey, we see some bad guys permission to engage. Yep. Go ahead. So we light them up and, and kind of, there's a little skirmish that ensues. Um, doesn't last very long. And we kind of come to a stop almost and, and we dismount some troops and it's like, okay, we found some wires and, and it looks like there's some IEDs. So let's investigate. So there's copper wire running alongside the road. So we know there's devices there somewhere. So, you know, I think it was Vaughn Ingram section goes up it's light now the sun's up and Vaughn calls back and says, Hey, there's a 500 pound bomb here. It's all wired up sitting on top of this, uh, this mud wall. Um, can we get the engineers up here? So the engineers go up guy named Sergeant Vachon and, uh, on the way he had called Vaughn and said, do I need my vehicle? And said, Vaughn said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. So on the way up, boom, hits an IED vehicle explodes. So of course we have to now secure the scene and sort of evacuate casualties, etc. And, you know, luckily nobody's, nobody's killed. Um, and, you know, fast forward maybe an hour, okay, new vehicle in the front, and it's Chris Reed's vehicle. They're driving up. They hit another IED. Um, Chris, Chris Reed is killed, and his whole section, that's in, it's a headquarters vehicle. So a guy named Sean Peterson was the platoon second in command, the platoon warrant. 
their platoon commander was gone. Well, now Sean's out of action because he's concussed. And, you know, I think all but one of the guys in that vehicle left, like we're medevaced. Um, so then again, we get that cleaned up and, you know, we get, we get Chris evacuated and he, and he was technically still alive when we evacuated him. But the, the PJs that came and picked him up, the, the pararescue jumpers, they were on the, uh, the Blackhawks, the medevac Blackhawks. They, they just kind of went, yeah, he's, he's likely not going to make it. So, you know, we didn't really know until, uh, you know, fast forward, however many hours that he, that he didn't make it, but the Colonel now says, Hey, we need to do a, a dismounted assault on this school and take this ground dismounted. We can't, we can't sacrifice any more vehicles. So he calls in John Hamilton and Vaughn Ingram, who by default, because Sean Peterson is gone, is now the platoon commander for his platoon. And John Hamilton was the platoon commander for reconnaissance platoon and says, you guys need to put together a plan and you need to go basically take this school. And at this point, we're not really being shot at or anything. It's kind of, okay, well, we need to figure out a way to get in there and we don't know what we're facing, but we'd been over this ground three or four times and had taken it and given it back up and taken it and given back up. So anyway, um, come up with a plan. Um, we're moving up into our attack position. And so reconnaissance platoon really wasn't part of the mission. There was a handful of us. John Hamilton looked at me and said, Hey, I got to lead this. You're coming with me. I was his right hand man. I said, yeah, no problem. Because at the time our mentality is, okay, let's go, let's go take care of this. It's going to take us half an hour. We'll go kick some ass. And then we'll be home in time for lunch type deal. Well, it's starting to get hot. It's, it's approaching midday. Um, we start approaching the school. We're getting into our attack position and we get hit from our right flank. So now we got to fight a battle to our right flank. And it's my opinion that that, that engagement to our right flank was meant to delay us so they could flood the school with more people. So we fight this battle, uh, you know, fortunately, nobody gets injured or killed during the battle, except for the bad guys. Um, but that takes us about an hour, hour and a half to sort it out. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, we're going to wait now because we have some fast, not fast air, but some attack helicopter assets from the Dutch that are going to come help us. Okay, so we sit around and wait for another hour or so. You know, it's now two o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's in the middle of the sky. <laughs> it's, it was... My, a good buddy of mine, Mars Janik, had pulled out his Kestrel and, and checked the temperature, and he alluded that it was somewhere between 58 and 62 Celsius. So we're burning up, we're waiting, and finally, you know, the attack helicopters show up, and okay, let's go. You know, we set our fire base. Vaughn's going to do a left flanking and with his section, and John Hamilton's going to control the fire base, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to crack this nut that way. But before we do that, we say, hey, you know, we've got Afghan resources. We've got Afghan police with us. This is their country. This is their fight. Let's send them in first, right? So they go in. Uh, we're kind of waiting. As so of course, as soon as they get to the school, all hell breaks loose. You can hear all the gunfire and everything, and the police come running back down the road, and they didn't even look at us. They just ran right past us. And so Hammy, John Hamilton, he gets on the radio to Colonel Hope and says, hey, the Afghan police are running away. Colonel Hope says, all right, well, you know what to do. John says, Roger that, sir. So he says to me, okay, you know, we're going to do this assault. Vaughn, you move. Vaughn starts moving. 
Well, he hits an impassable obstacle. So he gets on the radio and says, hey, I, I can't pass this obstacle. So now we got to readjust again. Okay, Vaughn, you come back to us. We're going to regroup and we're going to do a frontal, basically a frontal attack. So there's going to be one foot on the ground providing cover fire and there's going to be one element moving. And so as part of that, uh, Hammy says to me, hey, I need you to take the C6 and post up on one of our flanks so that you can provide us some extra cover. And the C6 is a general purpose machine gun, 7.62, um, fantastic weapon, uh, super high volume of fire, and and is really a combat enabler for us, or combat multiplier. So I take Bryce Keller and Mark Bedard over to the right flank, set them up, and I'm with them, and I'm going to control the gun while John Hamilton and Von Ingram are moving to the school. So we, we hit our H hour, which is our... You know, that's our time to go. The boys start moving. We're providing cover. And, you know, now we're getting resistance. But, you know, John Hamilton and Vaughn Ingrams, both their groups, they make it to the, the outhouses of the school. So they're not in the school. They're about 50 to 100 meters away, uh, just to the, it would be the west. And I see somebody fall and they drag him around the corner and I'm like, okay, I don't have a radio because <laughs> my radio's overheated. It's not working. So I'm like, okay, well, it's no good to me. Uh, why would I carry it? So I dumped it. Um, and up to this point, we now have so many heat casualties that Pat Tower um, gets told, hey, go, go set up a casualty collection point. We need you to take care of these heat casualties because guys are going down with heat exhaustion and everything else. So Pat goes and sets that up. So he's no longer with us. I don't have a radio. That's where I dumped my radio with Pat. Said this thing's no good to me. You know, um, well, I actually left it with one of the guys that was going back there. So I'm like, okay, I look at I look at Bryce and Mark. And I, I you know, I vaguely know these guys, but they're not in my platoon. Uh, I know who they are. They know who I am, but we don't really know each other. And I'm like, guys, uh, we got to go help them. I don't know what's going on up there, but we need to we need to get to that school. The C six is a big part of of our attack force, if you will, our assault force, and and we need to get this resource up there. And so Bryce looks at me and he goes, "I don't think I can do it, man. I'm I'm done. Like I'm the heat, you know. Like I just I don't have any energy." And I looked at Mark, and he was kind of. You know, he didn't really say much. He just kind of looked at me like, eh, I'm with him sort of deal. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go. I, I'm going to go. I got to go up there and and see what's happening and, and help where I can. And you guys can come if you want, or you can stay here. It's up to you. So in the meantime, you know, we're having this discussion. The boys are up in these outhouses. They've kind of set up a quasi-defensive perimeter, and they're fighting, uh, very numerically superior force. So at this time, there's probably 10 to 11 Canadians in that vicinity that are fighting, and the volume of fire has picked up significantly. And so we now know that not only is it a numerically superior force, but we now know that it's a professional fighting force or an experienced fighting force because they're layering their fire. So they're starting with small arms, then they're opening up with machine guns, then they're firing rockets, and all of this is designed to, you know, give them time to reload, 
keep our heads down, etc. So there's rockets coming down the road, flying past Keller and Bedard and I, and I'm like, well, guys, I got to go. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, basically do a 30 second count or 60 second count. I can't remember. And I'm going to take off and I'm going to run across this field. I'm going to do it in one bound. So I'm just going to run straight there. And, you know, if you guys come great, if not, then, you know, just cover me (laughs) sort of deal. So they made the decision, Hey, we're going to come with you. And I said, okay, great. We're going to do it. We're going to just go. The three of us are just going to run. There's no sense. It's, it's, it's like a bowling alley. It's flat as flat can be. There's no cover. There's no nothing. We just have to get there and we have to do it in one sprint across this field. So they're like, okay. And so I took a couple of spare barrels for the, for the machine gun and, and grabbed some ammo off of Bedard and Keller so that they wouldn't be as weighted down. And we basically did a countdown and we stood up and we ran across this field. And, you know, the whole time there's bullets kind of skipping around us and rockets flying past our heads, but we make it untouched, which is a miracle in and of itself. But so Keller, I, I come running around the corner and I, and I look down and I see there's a casualty. Um, I don't know really the status, but I know it's a casualty because there's bandages and stuff. And I'm calling for Vaughn. Hey, I got the C6. Where do you want him? Where do you want him? So Vaughn takes control of, of Bryce and his his machine gun team and I um, post myself up in one of these little outhouse type deals I'm exhausted right like my legs I was telling Adam my legs are like lead you know I don't have any water for whatever reason I didn't have any water Um, and I go into this room and you know there's a guy there need uh, I think his first name's Adam and I'm like do you have water he's like yeah I said okay give me some (laughs) He's like, this is the last bottle. I said, well, I'm just going to take a little bit. So I took some gastrolite and I threw it down my throat and I, and I washed it down with a, you know, a sip of water and instant, you know, instant energy is back. So then I link up with Hammy and I'm like, Hey man, what's going on? He's like, we're in, we're in a horrible situation here. We get guys that are heat casualties. They can't function. Um, Bedard's been shot. He had been shot in the, in the stomach, just below his, his plate on his, uh, his body armor. And we got to get out of here. I'm like, okay. And he goes, I need you to call in some fast air, some artillery, whatever we need in order to mask our movement back. Cause we have to, we're, we're combat ineffective. So I'm like, all right, well now the volume of fire is even it's, it's, it's increasing and increasing and increasing. So at this point in time, there's a working radio. I'm talking to the, uh, probably the Slayer jock at the time. And we have some fast air in the vicinity and I'm giving them cleared hot calls and I'm describing the target as a school that's a zigzag shape because that's the shape that it was, was a zigzag shape. And I'm saying you're cleared hot, you know, drop your ordinance. And uh, they're coming back and saying, my call sign was Slayer 61, Slayer 61. This is, I can't remember their call sign. You know, we just had an abort from the Aegis jock. So now I'm like, what the hell's going on? I don't know what's going on. And, and now the radio stops working again. So, you know, we're, we're start the situation's getting, it's, 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 it's getting worse. So I can't remember how long we were there. We set up, you know, uh, the C6 was set up where it was set up. We set up some other machine guns, some C9s, which are smaller machine guns. And we basically established a perimeter and John and I were talking about the best way to, to try and and get ourselves out of there. And somewhere along the way, I had walked back over into 
um, the, the outhouse that was closest to the school. And I took my helmet off and I sat down. I was kind of like, you know, trying to figure things out. And I knew we were in a bad situation. Um, but then, you know, I got up and I, I was going to walk back out. And then that's when things got real bad. Um, some rockets came in. Um, one hit the wall of the school and I was standing about 8 to 12 inches off the wall. So I got blown against the other wall and I landed on top of one of the guys in the doorway. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a couple different explosions. This happens a couple times. I get up and I start stumbling back because I'm, you know, somewhat concussed at this time. And uh, I start stumbling back and I'm saying, you know, what the fuck was that? And another rocket hits the building, of course, <laughs> and blown back into the other wall again. Um, so now I get up, put my helmet on and I hear people screaming and John's yelling for help and you got to come help us, Will. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, what's happening? And I'm looking around the room and, you know, there's some troops there that I don't know. They're from, they're from the platoon from Charlie company and, and I know them to see them, but they don't know me. I don't know them, but they're looking at me like, Hey man, you're the guy now. You, you got to do something to get us out of this. And that they didn't say it, but the way they looked at me was just like, and I was sitting there and I'm like, well, this is it. Like, I'm going to, they're going to have to write a letter to my mom and tell her, hey, he died in a shitter, <laughs> you know, in Afghanistan. <laughs> and I was ready to quit, man. That was it. I was done. I was tapped out. I was like, I can't, I can't function, you know. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat concussed. Uh, the heat is too much. There's people screaming. We're in a terrible, terrible situation here. And the only thing that kind of brought me out of it was those guys looking at me to be a leader and to help them out of it. They wanted to live. I was ready to die. They wanted to live. Um, and so that changed my, my mindset <laughs> like very quickly. I went, okay, I got to do something. And, and I remember having this discussion many years before with Adam and Mark Pickford and, you know, Johnny Devine. And, and we were talking about, you know, is doing nothing actually doing something? And then on the basic reconnaissance patrolman's course, the mantra was always doing something is always better than doing nothing. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll get over to Hammy and, and, and kind of see what the situation is and, and try and, and help out as best as I can. So I, I kind of made a decision to cross between the two buildings, um, with the thought in my head that I'm not going to get there because I'm going to get shot or blown up or whatever, but I'm going to go anyway. Um, and, and it was really my ego that kind of led me to do that because I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want people to think that I was a pussy. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I said, okay, I'm coming, John, I'm coming. And I, and I, and I, you know, I yelled friendly coming in and I ran out the door and I ran across to the other side and I dove through the door, um, of the building that John was in and, you know, on my way, I saw where Vaughn and, and. Bryce were and it wasn't a very pretty scene and I dove across and I of course I landed on top of John Hamilton's foot which was which had been blown up from the the rockets that had got fired in and of course he's screaming I'm like sorry man <laughs> whatever so anyway I I do first aid on him I tourniquet him up I bandage him get him all squared away and then I'm like what are we going to do he's like I don't know the radio doesn't work we're having you know there's guys there's guys everywhere that are injured uh, and at this time there was 14 of us there. And so now Mark Bedard, you know, unfortunately, 
um, when we when the boys did first aid on him, they took his body armor off so that they could bandage his, his wound, and they didn't put it back on. And so the impact of the rocket, he was still outside the building, it killed him. Um, then I turned over and, and looked where Vaughn and Brace were, and I went, out, I went out back out the building, and I went over to them. And I just basically said to Vaughn, like, hey, Vaughn, how you doing? Like, you know, sort of first aid is always like, you know, the first thing you say is, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, Vaughn, are you okay? And he kind of looks at me and, you know, he's got a daisy eye and, you know, his his stomach is, is basically split open and his intestines are on his lap. And one of his legs is bent back, like it's almost completely amputated, but not quite. And it's at a weird angle and his foot's pointing the wrong way. And it was very obvious that Bryce was was uh, no longer with us. Um, and Vaughn, of course, had a field dressing, a Canadian field dressing, and he was trying to, and it wasn't out of the package, and he was kind of trying to put it on Bryce. And he just kind of looked up at me and said, I think I'm slipping, and then he just died. And so, you know, now we've got uh, Mark Bedard is dead, or sorry, not Mark Bedard, Bryce Keller's dead, um, Kevin's dead, and Vaughn is dead. Kevin Dallaire. I was, I think I was saying Bedard. I meant Kevin Dallaire. So Kevin is, is now dead as well. And there's no less than probably six or seven other injuries, you know, so let's do the math. It's about nine, 10 people out of 14. There's like four or five of us that are still functioning. And so the enemy knows that they've, that they have now got the upper hand. They've got the momentum because we stopped shooting back because we were dealing huh. with casualties. If you don't mind me asking, how many how many people are shooting at? Do you know? Do you have any idea? Do we do we know a number? Like we do. Um, so the intelligence reports after the fact said between 175 and 250. 175 to 250 guys shooting at a group of 14 now down to five. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Yeah. So So now it's like okay, panic stations, we got to we got to get out of here and we got to figure out how we're going to get out of here and you know, my initial reaction was, okay, I'm going to take the guys that are still able to fight. I'm going to attack. I'm going to just attack into these guys and try and buy time for those guys that are injured to get, you know, withdrawn somehow. And, you know, Hammy says to me, no, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, if you leave, we all die. You need to stay here. I'm like, okay. Yeah, common sense prevailed. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Thanks for giving me an out. Um, so I grabbed the C6, which is still functioning. We put it up in a window in the, I guess the, the westernmost outhouse. And there's just a little block window in the top. One of the guys is on his hands and knees. The other guy's standing on top of him and he's firing the C6 out this window. And we got some machine guns, some smaller machine guns pointed in different directions because they're trying to envelop us now. And, you know, Hammy finally gets through on the radio and basically says, Hey, you need to come help us or we're all going to die. And so a couple guys hear that. Matt Parsons and, and Tony Perry, they were master corporals and they were crew commanding labs. And they get on the radio and say, hey, Niner, we're, we're going to go help these guys. And he's like, you know, that road is littered with IEDs. Are you sure this is a good idea? Basically, you know, don't go. And they're like, we're going anyway. So, you know, these guys start driving up to where we are to come help us down this IED laden road. Um, in the meantime, Curtis Qualche, who unfortunately died in a car accident a couple of years ago, is no longer with us. Um, he 
was injured pretty bad. He'd been shot a couple times. He was missing a chunk of his bicep and a part of his leg. And he came crawling across the floor and grabbed me by the ankle. And he's like, give me a gun. I want to fight. And I'm like, dude, you're messed up. Like, you can't, you can't do this. He's like, no, no, I need to fight. I need to fight. So I eventually put a machine gun in front of him, pointed him in a certain direction and said, okay, just shoot that way. <laughs> right. Um, so we've got a fairly decent sort of defensive perimeter set up, but you know, we're getting overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden Pat Tower shows up and I'm like, Pat, thank God you're here. You know, he's got a medic with him, and I'm like, where's the vehicles? And he's like, it's just me, man. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck. And he says, where's Vaughn? And I go, Vaughn's dead. He goes, okay. So the medic starts taking over, you know, doing triage and helping with, with, uh, saving people's lives. And the guy was a rock star. And so I'm like, well, we're in a bad situation. You know, who knows if we're going to get out of here or not? Well, in the meantime, Tony and, and Kiwi are now driving down the road, guns blazing, 25 millimeter cannons are going. They have coaxial mounted machine guns. They've got pintle mounted machine guns and everything is firing. And so that turns the momentum somewhat back in our favor for a period of time. And they pull up on either side of these buildings, drop the ramps and they're like, let's get, let's go. So we load all the casualties into one vehicle and you know, the rest of the guys get into another vehicle and, and, you know, we drive out of there and, you know, that's, that's not the end of the battle, but that's the end of my story for the battle because really after that, we had flooded the area with reinforcements, but then Colonel Hope was told, Hey, no more, like get out of there. And, and actually, you know, if I think about it, maybe that's wrong. Maybe he was told, um, to leave and he said, no, I'm not leaving. And then, uh, you know, after a certain amount of time, he said, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to pull back. And, and we ended up going back to Canada, our, uh, airfield after that. And of course, in the, in the meantime, you know, there's casualties being medevaced and all this stuff. So, you know, that's kind of how it ended up was, uh, you know, we lost four guys, uh, in total during the day, we had somewhere around 19 wounded, um, and I don't consider it a loss, but I'll take you back to when I said, you know, we had all these combat enablers and when all of a sudden we didn't have artillery, we didn't have fast air, we didn't have attack helicopters because the rules of engagement had changed. We now found ourselves at a significant disadvantage, especially numerically. Um, but I'm super proud of everybody that day because to think that 14 guys held off somewhere around 200 guys for the amount of time we did. And, you know, even though we sustained casualties, that that's pretty remarkable in and of itself, in my humble opinion. So, you know, that's the, that's the story. Um, and, and maybe there's some nuance there in terms of different versions and how I've told it in the past, but that's how I recall it today. Well, a first, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm sure, well, I don't know. I just, I sit on a fly on a wall, kind of like, holy shit. And then to hear... 175 to 250 and sure ballpark it at 200 like that's wild to me uh one um i don't know adam when you you've probably heard that story on and off different times certainly being a friend uh good friends what, what's what do you what sticks out to a military guy or, or a guy who's served alongside willie um first of all i know that wasn't easy for him to to say that he's given a, lo a little bit more detail than i've i've ever heard i've heard it a couple times and um Soldiers like Willie that have been in, in combat, sometimes they don't talk about it. Like Rod Deering, for example, there. 
and medic pocket. Like, I mean, he never, ever talked about it very rarely. And I, like you, I sat back and just listened to every word that he said. But again, it was leadership, right? And leadership means different things to a lot of people, but to soldiers, it's, it, it's key, right? Because people look up to you, especially when you start getting higher up in, in rank, they look to you to figure out the problem, right? Just like I look to the prime minister to figure out the problem or, or whatever there. That's what leadership is. You got to step up to the plate, even though that you're, you, you, you might not be able to, you know, physically, mentally, or whatever, you have to do it. And, you know, Willie pointed out that was the thing, you know, that got him going, right? It was those guys looking at him, you know, what do we do now? Because we're screwed kind of thing so that to me is uh, like I, I don't even know what to say at this point right like honestly I, I it's like, just click it off and let's all go in our merry way you know <laughs> almost um, to me the wildest part there's all of it but what you just said is something that um, I'm gonna have to think about for a long time right you're ready to give up and then their eyes are telling you, man, you, we got to do something. And that pulls you out of it. One of the things in society I see right now is a ton of people looking for somebody with that type of leadership to pull us out of this. I don't know who it is. I keep looking for it. I keep asking the questions. I keep talking to people because somewhere it's there. We're going to find it. And everybody's looking for it. And there's very few people that would be probably honest enough to tell that their story where they've been, I wasn't I, until they looked at me. You know, I, I think that's really hopeful, honestly, and a really probably dark. And I don't mean to make light of the story. And I hope that's not the, how it's coming off. This feels awkward because I'm like, what you just talked about is I, I don't have words for. But in the middle of it, you're talking about giving up. And I know a lot of people over the chunks of time feel like giving up and then eyes come on them or people look at them and say, we, we, and it just snaps. I think that's really hopeful. Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's, I'm a glass half full guy, you know, was Amen there, was that. there horrible things that happened that day? Absolutely. But I don't look at it as a failure. I don't look at it as, as we lost that fight. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, Kandahar city never got overran and, and soldiers, assume that unlimited liability up to including death when you go on every single mission and you know did we go into that fight with some misplaced confidence absolutely uh did we go into that fight um fully mentally prepared for what we encountered absolutely not but we still made it out right we we, we got in a gunfight earlier like july the 12th and i'll just give you a real quick leader's digest version of this uh, my platoon got ambushed by a numerically superior force with terrain advantage and blah, blah, blah. We got caught in a bridge, basically, uh, at first light. And we had an American embedded training team with us, and they had three or four Afghans with them. And at the end of that battle, when we withdrew and, and pulled back, uh, we did a we did an after-action review immediately with the chain of command. And when it, it was a U.S. Army Ranger, he was a major, um, um, when it was his turn to sort of tell his side of the story, he couldn't even talk. Like he actually started crying and he, and when he finally was able to talk, he said, I've never seen anybody fight like that. He's like, you guys didn't stop moving forward, even though you were outnumbered and, 
and outgunned and and uh he was like just flabbergasted he just couldn't explain it and you know it's it's important for me to talk about how we made the most with the least when we, when we were training during the days where we didn't have any of these these resources at our disposal and you know as a small platoon dismounted 12 guys fighting against 40 or whatever the number was um and eventually uh mark pickford's platoon came and and pulled us out of the fire but you know to continue moving forward and fighting against that numerically superior force you know that that is canadian spirit that is what we do we take the 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 best case scenario out of a terrible situation and we manipulate it so that it meets our needs right and uh, we don't quit we just keep going forward and and to me that was a very you know it was almost an epiphany of a moment because you know to have our our allies say americans don't fight like that like you guys are crazy and i don't even know what to say i'm proud to to have been a part of it yeah what a badge of honor to have the americans say that about a ragtag group and i mean that in the best possible way of a group of canadians who went in and and you know like i mean that's pretty cool because yeah, you know one of the things i'd written down here when you were talking well before you got too deep into your story was you know like what's the difference between canada and the u.s when it comes to the military i think you actually pointed out in your story about well the tools in the tool belt like what the americans have is insane compared to what probably anyone on the planet has and, and certainly there's going to be some uh, different military nations that have something similar but compared to canada the states it sounds like it's pretty clear the tools in the tool belt are not the same um and uh you know for them to to tip the cap or you know be unable to speak that says a lot about what uh canadians are capable about that might be the most hopeful thing you know that comes out of this entire thing i appreciate you guys coming in and doing this i i know uh for myself i always you know when I, I enter this room and certainly when i don't know willie or adam uh this is this is the adventure for me you know like i i don't know where this is gonna go i have no idea and uh, i hope that uh, i provided something that uh, you two were driving along going i wonder what this guy is all about you know and certainly you've listened to me before willie with uh, the two others but appreciate you coming and doing this i hope it isn't the last time uh, i get to sit and talk with you, you know I, I try and do uh, what came out of i've talked now i think you guys are four and five um, roughly and if i guess i tack on some of the older veterans it's certainly a few more than that but there's so much uh wisdom knowledge experience perspective out of our military veterans um i like to try and do it once a month where i try and grab some some military guys to come in and talk about different things and hear some stories because uh a from a canadian standpoint uh i didn't know a whole lot about certainly that story other than what i've been told and jamie's certainly uh told some stories and chuck told some stories and and uh it's starting to um give me some knowledge I didn't know about my Canadian military history. And then on top of it, uh, certainly just having your perspectives on the world today is really, really important. So hopefully uh, you enjoy your camping trip and hopefully it isn't the last time you two uh, uh, hop on here. And certainly I hope I, I did my part in, in making sure it was a place to sit and share some stories and ask some questions, all that good stuff. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks yeah. so much for having us. Thanks for getting me on the mic. <laughs> 